0: So one of the big issues in modern Middle Eastern history writing today is that we just don't have enough social and cultural history. We don't really know how people ate or how farming in 19th century, um, like say, Egypt worked to quite the level of detail we know of, say, 19th century France. But what if we had, for example, a study of portrait photography to help us fill in the gaps? And what if it tied into greater social issues like modernity, class? Uh, Modernity being one of the great questions of how to talk about modern Middle Eastern history and class being this booming area of interest in light of studies of global capitalism. So my name is N.A. Mansour and welcome to New Books of Middle East Studies. Today we have with us the author of The Arab Imago, A Social History of Indigenous Photography, 1860 to 1910, out 2016 from Princeton University Press. We have Professor Stephen Shihai, who is the Sultan Habus bin Said Chair of Middle East Studies and the Director of the Program of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the College of William and Mary. He is Professor of Arabic Studies as well and holds a joint appointment in AMES and the Arabic program uh, in the Modern Language Department. He did his doctorate at Michigan and his work largely examines cultural, intellectual, art history and the political economy of the late Ottoman Empire and the Arab Renaissance or al-Nahda he is the author of three books. Um, in addition to the book we'll be discussing today, he's written Islamophobia, uh, the Ideological Campaign Against Arabs, out 2011 from Clarity Press, which has been translated into Arabic as Al Islamophobia, Al Hamla Al Al Muslimin, and Foundations of Modern Arab Identity, out 2004 from University Press, of Florida. Welcome to the podcast
1: thank you for having me
0: so we always start off with a bit of a biographical question what is your intellectual biography how did you come to the study of the Middle East
1: Um, well uh, I guess like um, many other Arab Americans I came to this to the the study of the Middle East through um, you know political imperative and uh, (laughs) cultural context right Uh, I grew up in in the United States and particularly in the 1980s and, um, you know, a lot of things were happening in Lebanon and, you know, uh, Arab Americans like myself were sort of sitting at home in in New Jersey and watching it, uh, these things transpire in the Middle East. And, um, I just intuitively kind of knew that these, uh, that there was a disjuncture between sort of discourses that you get via the media at that time, excuse me. And, um, um, you know what might more be going on there um, was apparent, and it was you know it's you know I'm also a racialized you know racialized Arab American um, not being white helps you know not fit in and form identifications with the Middle East so you know i um i went to temple university i was a sort of an uh anthropology mediterranean studies uh major and i kind of came to a point in my life where i had a choice to follow sort of one of my true loves which was you know like archaeology of the mediterranean and you know all things italian and stuff like that <laughs> a romantic you know life of uh coolness um or you know jumping uh, uh, Headfirst into something that was um, emotionally and and you know personally important to me politically, um, so that's kind of what started the journey.
0: So a lot of your work has engaged with intellectual history. Your previous work previous to this book, um, but this is a very different book. It's about visual culture, and I think that's very refreshing. To, again, to see in Middle Eastern history, we don't quite have the level of depth in visual studies that we have in say just to use your example, Italian studies. So what was the genesis of this book?
1: You know, I think th- this current book in, in many ways um, started even with, you know, my my dissertation, which was on, um, in some regards, a, a separate topic, even though they share the Nahda. Um, so I think it... Uh, I have to say that I'm slightly fascinated by the banal and the mundane and the boring. So my first um you know my first book and my dissertation really um focused on you know many of these puerile commentaries and short stories and novels or proto-novels written in the 19th century that are seen as you know pulp fiction and schlock and um that sort of, uh, banality, uh, the politics of that banality, the, 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 the what that banality reproduces and p- produces, um, kind of has always informed much of my work. So I think the portrait is a a kind of a logical extension, sort of a visual extension of that. So the portrait in many ways is sort of, the uh, I think, uh, an analog to writing practices also of the Nahbar. So I think that's its very earliest genesis. And I was always interested in visual culture, even though I wasn't doing it. Uh, officially in the 1990s, and largely because I think um, the other work really wasn't done, right? The archival work wasn't done. I felt I feel that, you know, my first, my first book had to be written before the Arab Imago, before the visual stuff, you know, the, the sort of the, these other sort of ferreting out these discourses and these sorts of epistemological sort of um, roots um, had to be defined before I went to something uh, a little more immediate. That uh, which is photography.
0: No, I really appreciate what you said about the banal, mostly because I think what we forget with the Nahda sort of this this Arabic Renaissance of thought. I think the immediate impulse is to assume that oh well, it's all about these great ideas, these really big ideas. But I often think that the ideas that change society the most are the ones that we enact in everyday life, and they have the essence of being banal to some extent. Um, but what I also really like about the way you use the word banal, uh, both in what you just said, but also in the book, is that allows us to think about just how photographs, and perhaps before this age, are just things you sort of have around the house. Um, so photography is both a visual medium, but it's also a very physical medium, especially when, we, again, like we when we think about how photographs are handled. So how do you write about photographs? What was sort of the big shift from writing about Ideas and writing about short stories um, to writing about photographs? Yeah,
1: that's a great question because, you know, uh, I think, um, and this slightly has to do with your earlier question, but, um, and (laughs) it sounds kind of pejorative, so I shouldn't say it, but, you know, in the 1990s, you know, everyone in Complet was sort of doing, um, everyone discovered film studies, right? Every schmuck who has a PhD in Complet was going to write an article on some Arab film, right? And, um, and I love film, and I love our film. I just felt that that accessibility and that sort of um, immediacy um, missed something, right? And I think that when I started to write about photography, I realized that we have to write also about the photograph, Right? So rather than only the discourses around it, the discourses around film, what this film is sort of producing, what it sort of recalls, but there's also, and this is not to celebrate or over fetishize formalism, but you have to, you're really talking about a text that is really this extremely multi layered, intertextual um, material object so you kind of have to foreground that and that's always hard that was always hard like when i'm writing like to be, sort of you go riff off and you know you can go down the muktathaf trail or something but then realize oh my god i actually still have to be talking about images um so that's that's to me that's the challenge of writing about um, photography uh, is rooting yourself in the photograph itself um that's the difference
0: so what did source work look like for this project? Sort of what did you get? I mean, it's, I think I should probably describe the book first. Actually, it's this, it doesn't look like a typical academic book. It's this, it's designed like an art book. It has these beautiful images set in, which I can imagine cost your publisher a lot of money. Um, but yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, but what, what did the source work look like for this? How did you find the photographs that you used in the text? Um, what additional primary sources did you use to supplement the book?
1: Well, that's always, I mean, to slightly, I don't know if this is answering the question but or, or retooling the question, but really the challenge always in, to me in um, excavating material culture um, and social practices of the turn of the century. Uh, world is you know, what sources do we have right and when you have a country like Lebanon that will basically went up in flames um, when you have Palestine where much of it went up in flames and the other half was stolen and archives are stolen and, and how do you talk about quotidian practices and and sort of you know and objects uh when there are no or when there are less accessible what we can call archival sources or archival sort of wells to, to dip in So, and this is kind of how I I say that, you know, my first book has always um, gave me experience in excavating, you know, the journals of the time, which, you know, as you well know, write write about everything, um, and just trying to grab whatever possible source... That I can get on, that I get my hands on, whether it's autobiography, whether it is fiction, whether it is poetry, whether it is you know travel logs um, or uh, you know advertisements, um, because those well, I think there might be a particular pitfall to only relying on those sources, which were absent. As sources say 20 years ago like when when i started to work on it like people weren't working on them as much and now a lot of people do so i think it, obviously the archive f- forms the, the 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 topic and the discourses in many ways um but on the other hand it's it's kind of all we have um so that's that's you know uh, that's kind of what i was i was doing it just it's, it, it's a, i worked on a project i have to say for a long time i mean i started this project around 2000 2002 um, and so just you know any any possible piece of written material that i could get a hold of in addition to the um, the the photographs and then on a uh, not secondary natural, but on a parallel process, is that the the images themselves are are texts. Um, The images have writing on them. The images have physical scars on them. Um, The images can tell you where they might have been, where they might have come from, but quite often they don't.
0: No, this is actually, I think, a great part of a great leap forward in the study of the Middle Ages. we're starting to think of other things as texts um, when we come from a study that has been so grounded in text and intellectual history for so long for a variety of reasons. Um, so the fact that people are starting to read images and textiles and um, the environment as text is, is absolutely phenomenal, and your book will add to that. Um, another thing that the book is sort of in the midst of is that we're also sort of in this great renaissance of... Um, discussions of class in Arabic speaking societies Um, and your book I think is very much a part of it you talk a lot about sociability and how images and and formalism which you had mentioned previously um, sort of shape portrait photography so so what sort of I mean how does what themes of different forms of sociability and formalism are enacted in portrait photography
1: so, you know, again, uh, you know, if we look at – I think a good place to start is to understand the critiques and the, the previous discussions of, of class and class subjects, right? And there's this sort of cliché debate that previously was happening between certain academics who I won't really – I mean, they're sort of old-timers now, and out of respect, I won't name them, but, um, you know, about – you know whether there is a, a classed subject, whether there is an Arab middle class in at the turn of the century, whether there is a bourgeoisie, etc. Um, so for me, um, and, and 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 just just to continue, I thought the, the photograph was used, the portrait was used by many of these folks to either say, "Look, people look like bourgeoisie," so they would dress, and they would do this, or these are the opposite, rare exceptions self-selecting data of people who can and would but of course there are you know tens of thousands of other folks who aren't doing it so the middle class is only very small and for me that whole that whole discussion um, it's unfruitful. It's It doesn't speak to really what I would call the force of social formations. And that are things like, what is it? Like identifications, identifications with class ideals, uh, which are the, are the sort of the engine for, the ideological engine for how economic reproduction happens, right? Um, if you don't identify with capitalism, it's not going to happen. It will be revolution or it's just, you're just going to have obstinate, you know, workers. So, how do we? And that, and to me, the photograph facilitates and, and expresses and enacts. Um, at one level, these desires, these sort of identifications, um, so that that's the theoretical sort of premise to to sociability, right? That 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 is the first material and 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 social act that you have to to identify with us with a class a class position, and then you actually get the material object of the a photograph itself, and then that it becomes currency in its own self, right? And how it's displayed, how it's circulated, people pass it around, people write notes on it people put it in you know hang it on the wall yes you well know from the so you know journals there's discussion about how to make frames for it how so it it then plays into a a series of other social practices that also have to do with identifications of what it means to be a certain classed subject does that make sense
0: absolutely actually um because we're getting more into that aspect of the physical but also you've mentioned banality so many times and I think this is something worthy of celebrating um, sort of what aspects of banality and formalism sort of combine in portraiture or portrait photography?
1: What aspects of banality and so the, so formalism. formalism well I mean I think um, what, what fascinates me um, is the fact that when you look at it um, photographs, how much they are repetitive. Right? And they they, they repeat the same image in many ways. And um, two quick vignettes is one is i have a a friend who's a now very well-known visual artist and when i was starting this project um he was just like you know get used to looking at ten thousand of the same images um kind of like trying to shore me up and prepare me to what research is going to look like and then the other hand is the first time i was giving this talk uh, one of my talks on photography in a Sort of a, a secular room with it that is not only Middle Eastern studies people but people from all over in the many dif- disciplines. And two or three folks came to me and said, Wow, I'm just really sh- shocked about how my these portraits look just like my uncle from Kansas, right? Um, so that's what fascinated me a lot you know is that you have this sort of formalistic sort of flattening right this sort of um, um, uh, standardization and but the standardization still has to hold force, like why do people do it? What is it communicating you know um, where does it get value? how does this this standard currency have value um So that's, I don't know if this is answering the question, but so that's, that's one thing. And I think then people, I think people tend to fetishize uh, how people dress to sort of distinguish between the images, but I think, um, and they tend to, again, read them like, oh my God, the eyes are looking at the camera, therefore they have agency and, or not. And I don't, I mean, that's nice. I think, you know, 30 years ago when, when you're doing, dealing with postcards, you know, but I think the point for me is that what is it that got, what is it that makes it natural that everyone's standing, looking, and, and acting in the same way? You know, what is it that gets you there? What is it that gets these subjects there? And why are they doing that? And and how did it become not even a question that this is even something bizarre? <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: No, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned I mean, that comment about sort of how this looks like my great uncle from Kansas, because um, I think one of the – it sort of ties into one of the implications of studying the Nahda or the Arabic Renaissance um, is that there's this conversation about whether or not Arabic speaking societies are imitating the West. And I think everyone who writes about the Nahda sort of gets caught up in this. And I think, you know, the field has, has swerved in different directions about what's politically correct or what's fair, what gives agency to the subject. Um, and you use the term indigenous photography in the text. Um, so I was wondering what are sort of the historiographical and then to some extent the moral implications of using terms like indigenous or imitate or reductive to describe photography in Arabic speaking lands.
1: Right. So I think I, I, I try not to use the word you know imitate at all. I I think again that doesn't really It doesn't provide us with anything, right? Uh, It it, it ends the conversation. Um, But I use the word indigenous um, for a number of reasons. You know, a a pool um, uh, has this sort of indigenous sort of uh, discussion as well in Peru of photography and literature, and comes out of literary um, studies for me it was uh, it was a great it was great shorthand because when we talk about quote unquote the arab Imigo the history of that quote unquote arab photography that is photography not taken by you know Europeans and colonialists and orientalists it's The concept of Arab, obviously, we don't want to reify it. And in fact, the the people who are participating in uh, photographic production are not necessarily Arab. I mean, who the hell was identifying themselves at that anyway? So indigenous, to me, uh, opened up a space where, you know, um, Georgi Sabunji, who was this pioneer photographer of um, Beirut, who lived in Beirut, you know, wasn't born in Beirut. He was probably born in Mardin, his brother, same thing. Um, who's a sort of um, um, funny figure who was traveling all over the place? But in in the end, he himself was kind of uh, a photographic pioneer. Um, you have other photographic studios like by the Kovas. These people who we really don't know much about, but we know much. Uh, we know that they really weren't born in you know certainly in Lebanon and probably not even any quote unquote Arab lands. They were probably born out in Eastern, what is now Eastern, um, uh, Turkey. Um, and of course, then there's the Armenian connection, um, where the Armenian participation in photographic production throughout the, the, the Ottoman empire preceded the, the genocide, um, by a lot. So I think, you know, the term indigenous allowed me to sort of open up a space to one, to to do, to make sure that we understand what we're talking about. That is, we're not talking about, you know, Francis Frith, um, you know, and and Orientalist photographers. Um, But we are talking, but we're also talking, not talking about to be a pioneer, quote unquote, of Arab photography, if we can say that. Um, You don't have to be born in, you know, in, in Zgarta, right?
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because I actually think one of the great things about your book is that you treat like societies of Arabic-speaking lands or Arabic-speaking societies, you treat them very holistically. So you definitely get a sense of the diversity within those lands. And again, like you said, sort of what is an Arab? That's one of the things I think all of us working in 19th and 20th century history struggle with. Is it someone who speaks Arabic, which is sort of an easy cop out for someone who does intellectual history? But when you're doing visual culture, that's very difficult. But you really, again... I mean, the Armenians are mentioned. Um, you have the Greek Orthodox. It's it's really holistic. Um, so, I guess this is a broader question: Is how do you talk about minorities in the book, and how should we talk about "quote unquote" minorities in nineteenth and twentieth century Middle Eastern history?
1: Yeah, Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, that's that's another book altogether, right? Um, yeah. You know, I I my dream book that I'm going to write. You know, in when I retire is, you know, the, the um, people's uh, history of the Maronites, you know, uh, where, you know, I'll be able to bone up more on my Syriac and just, you know, try to get our minds around, you know, what it is to be, you know, um, a quote unquote minority, which the the word is weird, right? I mean, because it it holds a lot of um, implications within, uh, certainly, uh, an American racial context. Um, So it's, 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 it's a really complicated topic that I think I'm probably going to have to cheat to get out of the answer. Um, but I think in terms of photographic production, what I'm trying to do, what I was trying to do, I mean, as much as I'm speaking theoretically about all this stuff, I mean, the book really hopes in some way to have, a, I don't want to say encyclopedic, but. At least a really hard empirical edge to it right the reason why this took so long to write is that there has been no comprehensive history of just studios so just finding those studios where are they trying to fact you know uh, uh, find where you know where they're based if they were you know and and it's very hard it's a very hard trajectory to sort of um, to, to to find um, what was what was Common in most of these um, studios is that most were not Muslim, but that, but I know that Muslims did engage in. Um, photographic practice, whether as photo- photographers or as consumers, so it's it's a really as a, it's a very fine line to try to talk about photography because uh, in in context of minorities, because the way it has previously been talked about is, oh yeah, pho- photography was practiced by Christians and Armenians, and that's because they could because they're closer to Europeans. Because they've historically had these relationship with Europeans, and because Christians and Christian Arabs and Armenians somehow, because they're Christians, have a propensity towards Western practices more easily than their Muslim and Jewish counterparts. Um, and that's a real problem for me, you know what I mean? Um, because even though I can't necessarily track the number of Muslim-owned uh, studios before 1920 as easily, that doesn't necessarily mean, by all means, that Muslims weren't a large, largely um, participated in photographic practices. Does that kind of... I guess what I'm trying to do is explain the the challenge more than give you an answer.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. I think i um, I mean, I think another problem that you alluded to is that there is this assumption. I mean, walk into any museum, or one of these holistic museums in um, the Western Hemisphere, the British Museum or the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and well, you walk in and in the Islamic wing, there's always a sign that says, "Oh, well." the Arabs or the Muslims, they don't like visual culture because of this and this stipulation and Islamic law, thus they like calligraphy and geometric shapes. And I'm just like, um, no, there are many, I mean, any art historian can tell you of just sort of all of the, in addition to the wonderful calligraphy, and uh, all the plays with geometry, there are wonderful images of Human fig, human-esque, humanoid figures and Figative, animals. Right, figurative, so. representations.
1: And I think – but this is the problem, right? I mean, I think at one level what we don't want to do is underplay the actual fact, the historic fact, and the social fact that minorities did find photography a place where they could eke out a living and they could find and, – and I think that, for example, and I haven't – I can't really – speak too much of armenian photography because i really don't have that the language skills, which i certainly wish i did because i know there's a lot of information and a lot of resources unlike the the armenians actually have tons of stuff on this but you just have to read armenian which i don't but for example i think armenianness plays into um it's not irrelevant that the armenians Practice photography and ended up actually being a very, very well represented in photography. And part of that is that their minority status created communities in which they could do that, right? Um, So I don't want to make it irrelevant that minorities that minorities were overrepresented in photographic production. I think their minority the the social fact of their minority communities as being tightly. uh, organized and you know that they have their own uh, transnational and local uh, social connections help them be, establish themselves as photographers. I think that is is not irrelevant. In other words, there is an interplay between their social status and their social uh, milieu and their as a, as minorities and that they're photographers. However, on the other hand, we don't want that to become a deflection of photography. Uh, um, being a mass, pra- uh, a mass practice. The fact that photography is a mass practice. The, pho- the, the, the fact that the photograph is a quote-unquote secular practice precisely speaks to this moment in history. Right, that everyone is, pers- everyone is engaged in producing a quote-unquote secular culture. Right, that's not coincidental. Um, and of course, that is also it is not coincidental that this practice is championed by the sultan himself, uh, num- a number of sultans, right? Um, so while I be- I be- I- I'm careful with using this word secular, I think it's really important to understand the relationship between f- photography and secular social and political practices, which is what was happening at the time in many ways. This, the empire was becoming secularized, <laughs> Um, And I don't just mean that in terms of taking religion out of state um, governance, but I mean that in terms of social practices are themselves becoming um, disenchanted in a sort of Durkheimian sense.
0: I'm glad you sort of brought us up to the empire level because that's going to be my next question is that I think part of the book's argument is to orient two intellectual and cultural movements vis-a-vis one another. So one of them being, of course, the much aforementioned Nahda, the Arabic um, intellectual renaissance, and then also Ottomanism, which has many different connotations and definitions. Um, So sort of how did you see the relationship between the Nahda and Ottomanism or Osman Maluk?
1: I think, you know, obviously uh, um, what... If I can call it Nahda studies, it, what Nahda studies of the past twenty years has kind of done, and this can be in literary um, studies or in historical studies, is that previously the Nahda is seen as a effectively the quote-unquote roots of Arab nationalism, and Arab nationalism is exclusivist, and therefore um, in Antagonism with Ottomanism, because Ottomanism, therefore, within that sort of you know nationalist sort of paradigm, is also seen as proto-Turkism, uh, Turkism, right, or Turkish nationalism. And the, what Anatolian studies has kind of done is quite the contrary. Um, like late Ottoman, what has happened in late Ottoman studies over the past twenty or thirty years is that shows that these are these are interlinking pro, uh, 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 projects. Um, there is no Nahda so when you without the without the tanzimat right the language of the Nahda is the language of the tanzimat and the tanzimat starts quote unquote before the Nahda or at the at the same time as the Nahda. and it comes and there's a you know people in Beirut aren't just hanging out and just because there's no telephones to Istanbul doesn't mean that there's no interaction between the two um anybody who knows any inter you know any Sort of political history realizes that, that the social, educational, military, uh, you know, and political interaction between Istanbul, what was happening in Istanbul, and what's happening in the Arab provinces. So the Nahda is, we can say, an outgrowth or um, a counterpart. The Arab counterpart to Ottomanism, to late Ottomanism, um, and while that changes, that that project changes before World War One. I, I think that definitely the esprit de corps of uh, of the Tanzimat is very very similar um, and intertwined with the Nata.
0: Yeah, I think people often neglect to mention how many of these Naftha figures were intertwined with different aspects of. Even Ottoman diplomacy and statecraft, like Salt al-Husri, who, you know, has this very, is is very much an Ottomanist before 1918. Um, Well, his
1: parents are, I mean, they're Ottoman uh, apparatchiks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he's dragged around the empire. Um, and apparently, according to legend, spoke Turkish much better than he did Arabic, which he then mastered at a very late stage in his life, and then is important to Syrian nationalism um, during the Mandate period. Um, and there are figures like him. Um, there's the Khalidis from Palestine. So there is this intertwineness. One of my favorite archival finds recently was I was reading through the letters of Judji Zaydan, and he's going on and on and on about how he should have learned... Turkish when he was younger and he was learning at a much later stage. He was also apparently um, deluded about how quickly it would take him to learn Turkish. He assumed it would take him a month uh, of an hour of study a day which is is not the case with I think anyone who studied Turkish. Um, Anyway. uh, I I, I think this is an
1: important point that you raise and that is we don't only have to look at those folks who actually, you know, the big you know, uh, folks who were you know, wellies and, you know, whatever. Um, but we can also look at, quote unquote, the sort of the grassroots folks. And if you look at someone like, you know, uh, Sabunji, uh, George Sabunji, who was a straight-up photographer. He had a photographic studio, and it w- seems to be pretty um, uh, successful. At the same time, he was working with the Beirut mu- uh, municipality, and he had, you know, if you have, a, you, you see photographs of any of these folks, any Nahdawi sort of figure, they always have some sort of metal. Those are Ottoman metals, right? Um there when you see someone in a uniform that's an Ottoman uniform that's a given as a as a form of recognition um, you know the chevrons that they have these are all official Ottoman practices, and so you don't necessarily have to be uh, Louis Sabonji, his brother who was kind of a, a Nasab who was, you know, picking sides. All these such, or uh, um, but like Ahmed Shidyaq end up in uh, Istanbul, actually working for the Sultan. Both Shidyaq and, and Louis You don't necessarily have to be that. I mean, it, we don't even have to track to that sort of social practices. The people on the ground, we can see uh, uh, the the relationship and uh, between what it looks like to live at the municipal level and how closely, um, the Ottoman sort of presence is in term, you know, with juridically or whatever. Uh, and of course, you know, that's where social histories like Jens Hansen's book about Beirut and all are really, really important. You know, they really do show that closeness.
0: So, um, to switch gears for a moment. How does, what does portraiture look like institutionally? What does it look like if I'm a 19th century, as you said, Mahdali, and I want to go get a portrait commissioned? Um, or what if I'm in a group setting? Um, sort of how do I commission a, a picture for a group of people out of, I don't know, a certain school? Yeah. I think there's, I mean,
1: I don't know if commission sounds a little bit grandiose. It sounds a little bit paint, painterly. I think, you know, I mean, uh, uh while we don't have any, uh, you know, uh, business ledgers of any studios or anything like that, I think what's is we, we work from the mounts that they have, right? That you, you have someone's name. And then next to the name, they'll usually have like where 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 the studio is. And sometimes you have one name, um, and it'll be in a couple of different localities. Uh, sometimes you have so the Kirkorians are in in uh, um, uh, Jerusalem, and Sabunji is in uh, Beirut. But sometimes you'll have a picture a, a photograph that says Kikorians Sabunji, and it'll say Jaffa Jaffa on it. You know, so um what we can what well, i think what i would deduce from this is that you basically have you know photographic shops people walk in and for a pretty decent price get their picture taken and that's a sort of standard practice and then it's produced and they're given a number of different uh, uh you know uh, portraits um i think that on an institutional level i i didn't really work on group portraits and i think that's a whole nother um world um but it's a it's a very interesting question Um, a lot of places had for example schools for example had in-house ateliers so the jesuits absolutely did Um, um but what is important for us is to see like all the institutions that were being born in the 19th and early 20th century, all of them felt it important enough that they had to have their picture, their their, their portraits taken as institutions. And they organized them, they, they visually organized themselves to parallel how they organized themselves uh, institutionally, which, so again, we look at this like, oh yeah, of course they would, but why should we actually look at it as something natural? To me, I would think about, um, why is it important that some kollel would have a a, 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 um, a, uh, a faculty portrait? Right? How is that? Can we, can we denaturalize that in some way? And and I think that's what's an interesting sort of line to, to, to follow inquiry about. Um, but in terms of how does that look, I think it looks in a different uh, 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 ways. I think some people had in-house ateliers. Some people would just go to the local photographer and say, hey, can you come over? Um um, but I, again, I think I'm kind of more fascinated personally about how that actually happens so seamlessly and naturally and kind of – even though it, we should think about maybe denaturalizing that.
0: Um. So one thing I enjoyed about the book was how you engage with all of these different theoretical frameworks. And we've alluded to many of them um, already in this interview over the course of it. Uh, we've broken down quite a few of those, but in particular what I think is really interesting is that you um, allude to and take inspiration from the subaltern school. Um, so how applicable did you find that the, the subaltern school and its theoretical frameworks, how applicable do you find it to middle Eastern studies and to the visuals of uh, Culture of uh, Middle Eastern history, in particular. Um, I
1: um, I don't. I I I wouldn't identify my work as something that is. Um, that that is a work on subaltern study in a work on subaltern studies. Um, this is not to say that subaltern theorists don't inform me in some way. Um, uh, and certainly Gramsci does inform me. And I think Gramsci is, um, uh, Someone that demands us to be uh, uh, to reread um but i think subaltern studies is uh, is very complicated and i think it's also being it's also misused in many ways but i will say in as much as my own work i don't think it's necessarily about the subaltern and in the subaltern i, I do uh, um, i think my work sometimes my um Give a chapel bas to subaltern studies in as much as how we want to use the image as a historical text and what does the photograph actually tell us and the te- and this is where I think through an, uh, the, the 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 photograph as multi layered and at one level it enacts certain discourses um, but on the other la- layer that there is a latent context to. The image itself, and that latent context is that which is unrepresentable—the th- things that have been pushed out. Uh, and in that regard, it's the subaltern. It, it has a sort of a nod to subaltern studies because the nod to subaltern studies is not just about working class. That's not necessarily what this subaltern studies is about. Trying to how ha- trying to find ways of represent those people who are locked out of representation. you follow what I'm saying? So. I wouldn't necessarily identify my work as within subaltern studies, although I certainly do appreciate, you know, those foundational works in it.
0: Now, and you're very nuanced about that in the book, sort of referring back to it and then sort of taking what you referring back to the theories in a the whole and then taking what you can from it um, and saying where it's applicable and where it's not. Um, so. I wanted to ask you because, again, books like this are so rare. Studies of visual culture are just so far and few between in Middle Eastern history, uh, historical studies. Where do you see the field of – do you think the field is opening up to visual culture?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think as you noted, there's definitely a movement to um, – there's a return to the materiality um, of of history um i think that we were pushed into a dichotomous world um by the late to, you know 90s where there was a false understanding or false dichotomy between sort of foucault and marx right and so it was all about discourse or it's all about um Materialism, and I think that there's a return to materialism without necessarily um, surrendering the force of discourse. Um, so I think that that's that's a, a trend in general. I think that visual culture and uh, vis- uh, sort of material objects are becoming, as you noted, um, recentered as objects that we can try to think about, uh, and this comes out of a lot of, you know, theoretical stuff that's going on and, you know, Latour and all these, and Ranciere and all these sorts of folks, um, where objects have living histories. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot, I definitely, in in photography studies, there's definitely a Renaissance or a a renewed interest in it in a critical way too. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that I think that's that's definitely where we wanna where we're heading towards, and, and and I will only end in this point is that what I like about it is that people are actually, you know, twenty years ago, people either did theory or they did hardcore empirical history, and now I think we're at a stage where, you we do have um, a generation, of scholars who can handle both responsibly um and adeptly which is which is allowing us to move to a place where we can think about materiality but also think about it you know theoretically
0: yeah, and I think a lot of this has been informed by the fact that we're in a bit of an, well, not a bit of, we're in a full blown archives crisis right now, which is, of course, very, very, very secondary to what's going on in the Middle East currently. I think sort of the concerns of historians and preserving history is little compared to the fact that there are these mass human tragedies going on. But as people who have to make their living off of writing history um, and using archival sources is, is something we think about and we have to be very creative with what we look for. Um, we have to think about, well, I mean, if I can't access this source because it's in Damascus, where can I go and find it? Um, so,
1: And I think actually, but just as, uh, 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 to f- kind of expand on that thought and also kind of Answer the previous question, which is the limit, the global and and, and regional and local limitations that academics are put into thrust us to rethink how objects circulate and humans circulate in human histories, right? And it can be very productive. And I mean, as horrible as I think, so I'm not like, thank God there was a Syrian crisis, you know, Syrian civil war. I'm not saying that, but you know, obviously. But I'm saying it's it's those those are not two separate. Um, the predicament of the uh, of academics and how they're dealing with that is not necessarily separate from um, the material conditions that force them to, to find new ways to think about things. Um, and so, for example, it's forcing us to, for example, think about things like afterlives, right? So, in other words, you think about the, the nahda uh, You think about images, for example. Think about portraits. Okay, uh, when well, we look at a portrait from the 19th century, that had a particular currency Determined by the market, determined by the, the, the uh, of exchange that it was uh, it was being exchanged in, right? But that image now also has a different sort of currency. The image itself has taken on a number of different afterlives, which are themselves imbricated with the history, the history of that image and the history of that representation. But on the other hand, with the current moment, so I think actually. The crises that we have now going on in the Middle East and how academics have to do historical work are not necessarily um, – they don't sit side by side, but they're interlinked about the new methodologies that we have to think about to get at certain historical questions.
0: Yeah, and we've talked a lot about agency, and I think – Repurposing sources and thinking again, like you said, about how things get to different places, um, or reconsidering different historical cases will hopefully allow us to give further agency to our historical subjects. Um, that's always the hope. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, thank you so much for this interview. My pleasure. The book is phenomenal and gorgeous, and I hope that people appreciate it for what it's adding to the field.
1: That's very kind of you. Thank you.
0: So to close the interview, we always sort of ask. What are you working on currently? Can you give us any teasers?
1: Uh, I'm working on um, two or three projects. One, I'm finishing a book with uh, Salim Tamari and Isam Nassar. That's going to be published by the University of California Press. And it's about the um, uh, photographic albums of Wasif and um, And so that's that's becoming – we're finishing that right now. Um and Bashada, that's going to be appearing here in Bashada Dumani's uh, Palestine New, New Directions for Palestinian Studies uh, series. Um, I'm also um, working on a larger sort of an extension uh, of, of this project on photography called Decolonizing Photography, which is trying to search for a methodology of how we can approach uh, image production um, in uh, in our context in the Middle East, but um, in the sort of colonized context. So, um, and then, and also I, uh, uh, with my wife, I am co-writing a book called um, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, uh, where we look at um, sort of both the psychoanalytic effects of occupation, but also really practices by which uh, Palestinians um, have instituted um, to, um, stave off what we call psycho, sort of psychoanalytic or psych, uh, psychological sort of intrusion. In other words, kind of how do you stay sane under occupation? Um, so that's that's the other project we're working on. Well,
0: Those all sound like phenomenally cool <laughs> projects, and I think they're going to add a lot to the feel. Thank you. Uh, anyway, Thank you for the interview. And My the pleasure.
1: Project. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.